I want to introduce you this morning to a couple of ideas uh, that may be new to you uh, and get you to thinking about our journey in a slightly different way, uh, quite possibly. Uh, first one is this. I was introduced to this idea uh, not too long ago, uh, and it completely transformed the way I see a lot of things. Uh, law of diffusion of innovation. Law of diffusion of innovation. How innovation diffuses into uh, the mass market. This is a marketing uh, concept, uh, and it helps us understand how we get from innovative ideas and products uh, being accepted into the mass market uh, and, and everyday world. Uh, so think about this. He, he, pr- he proposes this as an idea. Uh, he says... That there's a curve, uh, and right here, 2.5%, these people are the innovators. 2.5% of our culture are innovators. They're creators. They're people that have ideas. They, they challenge the status quo with their ideas and their concepts. 2.5%. Uh, and then you've got 13.5% are early adopters. Those are people that take the innovators' ideas and they receive them quickly and and they partner with the innovators. Second thing you have is the next, uh, what's my percentage? I think it's 30, 34%. 34% are your early majority. Man, spelling's coming out in me again. The next 34% is your late Majority. Whoa, I just exchanged my T for my J. Y'all like that? Uh, and the last 16% are your laggards. So let me explain this. When iPhone comes out with a new iPhone, right? The innovators and the early adopters, this 16%, wait in line for hours and even camp overnight to get the new iPhone, right? Those are the people that have to be the first to receive the new innovation, the first to receive the new product, the new idea. They always want to be first when it comes to that. The early majority wait behind until the first update comes to work the kinks out. They let the early adopters go first, work out the kinks, and then when it's ready, They will get it a week or two later. Late majority, when it comes to iPhone conversation, that's me, so I know exactly how they think. Uh, We're going to wait until the iPhone gets discounted, and I can get the same technology six months to a year later. And the laggards are Shelly's father. He still has a flip phone, and he will until they are discontinued, and he has to get a smartphone. Right. So when it comes to cell phone conversation, that's how that works. Um, You can also think about this in the concept of flat screens. Remember when the LCD and the LED flat screens came out and they cost thousands of dollars to get that TV right there? We paid $300 for that TV. But when that technology was brand new, the uh, first 16% of the innovators and the early adopters paid thousands of dollars for a TV that was not near as good as that, right? And you remember six months later, it had black spots all over the screen because all the LED lights went out. Or maybe the whole thing went pink uh, within the first year. Like that thing's gonna last. We got one that's like half that good and it's 10 years old in our house, right? And it, it costs next to nothing. But that's what it is. The early adopters said, we're going to pay thousands of dollars to be the first in the process, to be the first to receive that new technology. Uh, The early majority says, we're going to wait. Come on in. Come on in. Join us. Pizza Hut. There's your man with your money right there. He will hook you up. Um, So think about it like that. Laggards are still watching their dinosaurs. You can't move them because they weigh so much and, and they're just not going to receive new innovation. And that's the way it works. So think about that. The, when it comes to receiving or, or, or putting out new products and new ideas in the marketing world, here's the goal. The goal is that you want to get the majority to accept your product or your idea. 
You want to get that 68% to accept your product or your idea. But you cannot get the majority to accept your idea until you get past what he calls the tipping point. The tipping point is when you get 16 to 18% of the early the innovators and early adopters to receive your product or your idea. Only when the first 16 to 18% receive it can you get past the tipping point to, to get into the mass market, the majority of the people. Okay? Didn't think you were coming for a marketing lesson. But after I saw this, I was like, oh, this is us. This is us. This is what... Uh, this is what happens. The majority, think about this, the majority, whether it's early or late, will not accept an idea until we get past this tipping point. It will not happen. The majority of people will not accept an idea or product until somebody else tries it first. Jesus also began with innovators and early adopters. Think about that. Jesus began with a small group, a small percentage of the population of early adopters and innovators. He, he did not try to pull in the majority from day one, did he? He started with a small group of 12, 12 early adopters. So let me ask this question. Why, why would Jesus not be able to begin with the majority what would the danger of jesus starting his ministry to proclaim the kingdom of god to the world what would be the danger or the the hang-up if he wanted to start by reaching the majority with his concept and his message hmm it wouldn't stick why not They haven't seen an example. It wouldn't stick with the majority because the majority says we're not going to receive it until somebody else tried it first. Right? So there's that. Anything else? What, what other reasons might Jesus have started with a small percentage instead of going for the mass population? They don't get it. So whatever the reason is, what you just said there at the end, they don't get it. Right? We think it's one thing, it's not that thing. And until somebody else uses it or accepts it and then tries it, can we really understand what it is and how it works and what its value is? Right? Um, any other reasons? Why would Jesus not be able to get in with the majority? Yeah, which he's going to get into where we're going here in just a few minutes, that it required that small majority to spread the concept, to spread the idea, to spread the product, which in his terms was the gospel of the kingdom of God, right? So it takes that small majority to be that spokesman. I, I want to go back. Do what? But, but why, what, what, let's say Jesus came... We know he spoke to thousands. We know he, he had hundreds that, and thousands. That were, everywhere he went, there was thousands of people, right? Because when he sat down, he's like, there's 5,000 people we've got to feed because they followed me to this point. But then Jesus says, if you want to continue to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody runs off, right? He, he, he intentionally scatters them with a difficult message. And, and then he looks at Peter and says, Peter, you want to go too? He's like, I, I don't have anywhere to go. You have the words of life. So Jesus intentionally like, would defer the mass majority in order to continue with his early adopters. What's the danger in saying, I'm going sh- to bypass the first 16% and shoot for the 68%? Because there's more people than 68. Let's say, let's say we did that. Let's say that Jesus said, you know what, forget about the twelve. That's three and a half years of wasting my time investing in the 12 when I could actually have the 64%. What's the danger in him doing that? We know the reasons why it wouldn't work, but what's the danger in him doing that? You lose the message, you lose the value. If you, if you lose the message of Christ, you lose the value. Right? I want to... Adopt the whole concept of actually 
Okay? So the concept of discipleship that we... Like growing those, they can go out and mm-hmm. make more disciples. Make more, you know, you just, you're that big, you just sit in the crowd and get lost. Well, I think Shelley just hit on exactly what we hit on last week, is if I want to shoot for the 64%, instead of investing in the first early adopters and innovators, then the problem is I create consumers instead of creators. If I'm going to shoot for the mass market and I want to grab 68% of the people instead of equipping the first 16%, then I have created a whole crowd of consumers that are just going to follow me around, listen to my words, and eat my food. But they will never eat my flesh and drink my blood. They will never carry their cross. They will never make more disciples. Why? Because they were not walked with in order to multiply. They were here to consume. And that was the whole thing Jesus knew. He's like, I know you guys are here to see another miracle. I know you're here to eat more fish and see that multiply. And I know you want to hear more words that are going to encourage you. But you need to know that it's going to cost you everything. And they were here to consume and not create. They were not here to multiply as they were made to. They were here to consume. Because we said last week that consuming over creating is the original and continual sin of God's people. Eve did it first multiply, fill the earth with the image of God, but instead I want to take the one thing that God didn't give me and I want to consume that. Because in consuming that, I'm going to reach and attain to something that, I've, that God has not given me. Right? So she was made to be a creator, a multiplier, but instead she became a consumer and that was the fall. That was the end of it. And same thing, he made us to make disciples. But if we're not very careful, then our church concept uh, does not does not make you multipliers, it makes you consumers. In the same way that Jesus started with the 16%, the small group of innovators and early adopters, in order to make multipliers, creators, not consumers, we too can go into this process with this concept and we say, oh, this is so true. This is so true. Uh, Jesus believed that we as disciples, are capable of something great. When you pair us with the gospel and the kingdom of God, Jesus believed that there was something incredible that could happen um, if he would make disciples and not consumers. Anybody remember what our definition of disciple was from last week? We made a long one. The simple version is follower or student, learner. Um, but we made one specific to us. It is this. One who... in Yeah, and that word increasingly is key. Increasingly worships Jesus. Being changed. And what was the last one? And obeys. Every day life. What's the key ticket on the end of that? Helps others do the same. Do the same. All right, so a disciple, our working definition, someone who increasingly worships Jesus, increasingly being changed by Jesus, increasingly obeying Jesus in everyday life, and is going to be a multiplier, a creator, someone who creates, makes multiplies disciples, fills the earth with the image of Jesus. That is a disciple. And in Jesus' term, if if it doesn't have this on the end of it, then what happens when Jesus is crucified? That's it. It's done. It's done. It's over. Why? Because everybody's here to consume. Everybody's here to eat at the table. Nobody's here to multiply. And if we only create consumers, it begins and ends with us. As long as we can feed, as long as we can supply, then we can create a crowd. But, if, but if, if, if I'm gone, if you're gone, then the thing, the movement, the kingdom of God does not progress. And it, it stops, it ends and begins with us. And Jesus knew that. And he believed if he created multipliers, then there was power to change the world. So how did Jesus invite these men into the relationship? Remember that? If you've read the Gospels, Jesus is walking around. He encounters Peter and those guys, and how did he give them an invitation? He's, follow me, and I will make you fishers 
of men. Follow me and I will make you. What did he call us to do? Make disciples. But he first made us so that we could make others. Right? So the process began in the process of discipleship that Jesus says, come with me, everyday life, spend it with me. I'm going to teach you who I am so that you can worship me and I'm going to make you or change you. Uh, And in the process, you're going to obey me in everyday life and you're going to help others do the same. You're going to be fishers of men. That's what that means. Fishers of men, help others do the same thing that I've done for you. Right? I'm going to not make you consumers, but I'm going to make you into creators, makers, multipliers, disciples. And that's what Jesus did with a small percentage, not with a mass market, but with a small percentage for three and a half years. Jesus taught these men and they increasingly worshiped him, were transformed by him and learned to obey him and their influence. Check this out. Go back to this. You got the first 16... 34, 34, and the last 16. He started here with the early adopters and innovators. He invested in them. And three and a half years later, those 12 men who became 11 men, one of them dropped off, passed the tipping point and completely changed the whole world. In marketing terms, they hit the mass market. Jesus spent three and a half years with a small percentage so that he could impact the big percentage. But if he'd have created consumers from the beginning, that would have never happened. It would have begun and end with him. But because he did it this way, it's had the the worldwide impact of the gospel that we see today over the last 2,000 years, right? So we see how Jesus has operated. We see the impact You are the innovators and early adopters in our story. That's you. For whatever reason you have come, for whatever purpose, whatever agenda, whatever whatever your motivation is, you are the innovators and early adopters of our story. It is you that are being invested in not to become consumers, but to become creators and multipliers. So that through you, we might impact the mass market of our county, right? So so we don't look at our story and say, man, why do we not have hundreds of people with us yet? It's like, because we're not in that part of our story. We're not in that. Because if we bypass this part of our story, then we create a whole room of consumers instead of a whole room of creators. And he called us to make disciples, not consumers. So here we are in this part of our story. You are the early adopters. You are the innovators. And and if if we had time this morning, but we have lunch, we could go around the room and have the reason why each and every one of you have come to this story. What's your motivation? And and we'd have a whole list of different reasons, right? But the fact of the matter is you're here, you're a part of the story, and this is your role in the story, okay? Um, So when it comes to our vision, we've got to ask a handful of questions. Uh, I'm going to make this as really simple as we can uh, so that it's as memorable as it can be. So, three questions. Why, how, and what? We want to answer these questions in a very clear and simple way. The why is we believe if you become makers of disciples, then there's an incredible potential that lies within you through the power of the gospel. That's why. We don't want to spend the rest of our life making consumers and trying to fill a room. We want to spend the rest of our life making disciples and try to fill the earth with the image of Jesus. I am done spending my life trying to fill a room and make consumers. It exhausts me, it wears my heart out, and it is unfulfilling. I've spent a large portion of my life doing that. And the burden that is upon me now 
and that has been increasing over the past decade is what would it look like to simply make disciples and fill the earth with the image of Jesus? That's what we want to do. That's our why. Because we believe if we would stop trying to create consumers and fill a room, instead we want to create disciples and fill the earth, I believe the same power that Jesus believed in is still, is still relevant today and the same impact that those are first 12 made, the next 12 can make as well. If we would just stop the cycle and make disciples instead of consumers. That's our why. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. How? How are we going to do that? Uh, we have three points in our vision. Loving, serving, and I've changed it over the years. Proclaiming. How are we going to do this? By loving each other and others as the Heavenly Father loves us. That while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He loved you while you were sinners unconditionally. And it was visible and tangible. That love was seen. It was felt. It was known in the cross and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to fulfill our vision by loving each other and others in the way the Father loves us. By serving each other and other as the Son has served us. Philippians 2 says... Jesus, though being in the form of God, took on the form of a servant. And he was obedient to the point of death on a cross. We want that to be our story towards each other and towards everyone else. And finally, proclaiming good news as the Spirit has, been, as the Spirit has proclaimed it to you. We want to, and we're already doing this, we're learning how to speak the gospel towards each other because it's for everyday life. It's not just for your salvation when you believe you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you belong, you're a child of God, wait on eternity to come. No, we believe the gospel is relevant every day. And I want to speak it to you so that you can be reminded of how the good news is applicable to your life today. And also we want to learn, we had conversations, Andrew, this morning. How are we going to proclaim the good news to everyone else too? We're not here to pat each other on the back and encourage each other. We're, we're also here to proclaim good news to those that need to hear it. So we're going to do this by loving, serving, and proclaiming the good news. That's how it's going to happen. So then if somebody asks, well, what do I do? What do we need to do in order to see this happen? Well, I need you to engage in life, in community. Life on life and life on mission. These are the three levels of how we operate. And if you'll engage in these, you'll become a disciple and you'll grow in your spiritual journey. Life and community, that's this. When we share meals, share them with us. Be hospitable. Invite the rest of the family over and, and to experience the community at your house, at my house. When we throw parties, be there. Uh, do everyday life together. Do these things together. It's life and community. Live like a family. Love each other like a family. Serve each other. And do life in this community that is provided for you. Second of all, life on life. The most obvious way that happens is our DNA groups. If you're not engaged in the DNA group, don't be surprised when you don't have as many stories to tell when we begin to ask for your stories. Right? Because you're missing a piece of the puzzle. If you're only coming to life and community, but you're not at the life on life where somebody really knows you and you really know them and you're speaking the good news to each other, you're missing a major element of how we operate and how we believe Jesus operated as well. Jesus had 12, but he also had three. He had three men that he led inside where nobody else went. The closest parts of his life. He had thousands that followed him, 12 that walked with him, and three that he let see the inner parts. That three is your DNA group. It's that life on life. It's the most unique space in your life where you get discipled in the most personal way. Life on mission. If we're doing all this, but we're not helping others do the same, begins and ends with us. Right? So life on mission is key. Whether you're on mission towards your neighbors, whether you're on mission towards your coworkers, whether we're throwing parties in our county, whatever it is, life on mission is a, a non-negotiable part of how we operate. Okay? So there's our vision as simply, as quickly as I can put it, because I want to get into discussion. The vision... 
that I've just laid out to you is countercultural. We've already witnessed it in the most simple ways, serving each other. <laughs> I'm not going to pick on you this morning. Uh, but as, as simple as serving each other as Jesus has served us is one of the most countercultural concepts we've engaged in so far. You don't like to be served. You want to be self-sufficient. I'm going to tell you already, I got a lot of projects at home. I want you to serve me. Serve me. Come to my house and do something for me, right? But that's not culturally normal. We have the most self-sufficient, I can do it mentality. And and we're finding that as simple as our vision is, it is extremely countercultural. Life on life, one of the hardest things that Shelly and I say over and over and over is getting past the church facade and how you doing, I'm good, and like getting into your life. We don't want people to be in our life. Why? Because our life is messy. It's full of junk. It's full of heartache. It's full of difficulties. It's full of unbelief. And one of the most difficult things we've seen over the past year is getting past your facade, getting past my facade, and getting into actual life so that we can see how good the gospel is. We don't like to share our crud for the sake of sharing our crud. We share our crud because we know the gospel is bigger than our crud. And if we're not willing to admit that we're messy, then we'll never understand how good the gospel is. It's in your weakness that the power of Christ may rest on you. But if you don't ever want to be weak, you're never going to be strong. Life on life, right? If, if you guys don't open up, that gives us no incentive to open up. Yep. Yeah. Can we go ahead and lay like a, a foundation? There are no unspoken prayer requests in this body. They don't exist. Don't exist. You, you need to trust me more than that, and I want to celebrate with you when it comes true. Unspoken prayer requests, are, they're not going to happen here. Right? It's not going to happen. That's a good way to create gossip and a good way to, to create stories that aren't true. We're going to confess our unbelief. We're going to confess the reality of what we're going through, and we're going to pray over each other that we may be made strong and made whole. And just like I said earlier, when we pray over each other and then Peter comes knocking at the door and we're like, no, Peter's in jail. Like, no, Peter's at the door. God did a miracle, and we're going to celebrate together as a family when miracles happen. Yeah, that doesn't happen if we're not willing to to lay it out there in our life-on-life setting, right? So we want to do that, not for the sake of saying, here's where I suck, No, we want to do that to say, here's where God's going to prove himself to be strong, and we're going to celebrate that together. Well, when you do that, you don't realize it, but a lot of times there's somebody sitting across from you or next to you that may be dealing with the same thing, Mm -hmm. but is too afraid to say something because they don't want to look like they're weak or, you know, they're being intimidated by it or whatever. You know, it just gives them an opportunity to say, okay, you know what, hey, I deal with that too. Let's work with this together. I can't remember if it was Heather, somebody hit on or Shelly, somebody hit on it earlier. Jesus lived out this type of mission and this type of discipleship with his people. This is what we're doing. He did it for three and a half years. How did they cross the tipping point? Remember, you got the 16% of innovators and early adopters, and then you got the mass market over here. How did it go across that threshold? It was the simple process of word of mouth. Word of mouth. And, and it's, I just read a book called Contagious. It's, it's the whole concept about word of mouth. And when you look at the Gospels, when you look at the Scriptures, when you look at the process that happened, uh, when I took New Testament survey in school, it tells you it's like it was when Paul took the Gospel and started starting churches in the whole Roman Empire, it was like the perfect storm of the opportunity. There was no internet. There was no vehicles. Rome built a road that he got to walk on, and that made it a lot easier, but he went from town to town telling a story. Town to town telling a story. It's word of mouth. That's all it was. Jesus invested in a small percentage. That small percentage went into the masses, and word of mouth spread the gospel and the story of Jesus through the whole world. Very quickly. Very quickly. Simply by the telling of a story. 
Uh, look with me at Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at four verses, 9 through 13. This is Matthew telling, through word of mouth, his story. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Jesus is talking about himself here. Or Matthew's talking about himself. Matthew wrote the gospel, and he's telling his own encounter with Jesus right now. He met a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, It's it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. So there's a couple things that are going to make this story really impress upon our hearts that we need to understand some context. When he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a toll booth. What, what was the toll booth? What is this? Tax collector. Who does Matthew work for? He's a ta- government. Who is the government? Rome. Rome. is in, they've, they're, they're controlling Israel. They're controlling uh, the Jews right now. And, 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 and ultimately, Matthew works for the enemy. He's a tax collector for the enemy. What are tax collectors uh, known to do in this time? Steal. They collect more than is required. Tax collectors were getting wealthy on somebody else's money, and they were doing it as they worked for the enemy. It's like, here we go. All right. Who is Matthew uh, in his heritage? What, uh, he was born a Jew. He was a citizen of Israel working for the enemy of Israel, taking more than his fair share and becoming rich off the people's poverty. Exactly. What do you feel about people like this? Don't like them. If you want to speak honestly, you can say, I hate them. Stealing my money, he's working for the enemy, he's supposed to be one of us, but he's a traitor. This is Matthew. Jesus comes to that man while he's collecting his money, collecting his taxes, he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him. Now, if this happens in your small town, if this happens in, it's like this religious leader, this teacher that's getting well-known, he's growing in fame, everybody loves his teaching, and now he walks up to the enemy, the one who's a traitor, and he says, get up and come with me. <gasps> did he just do that? He did. He just did that, right? And, and there's this, this gasp that comes over the people as they see this event take place. And now, while he's reclining at the table in the house, whose house? Matthew's house. Jesus says, get up, come with me. I'm going to go eat dinner at your house. You're going to throw a party in my name. And all your traitor tax collector buddies and sinners are going to come and they're going to party with us. Oh my goodness. Now this religious teacher that's growing in fame, he's not only taken this tax collector, this trader, under his wing and walking with him. Now he's gathered with all his tax collector trader buddies and all these well-known sinners who are people that just uh, disregard the law of God. And now he's, he's not only got one under his wing, he's throwing a party and he's feasting with all of them. This is the most scandalous thing that we could possibly imagine for some of the people witnessing this. When the Pharisees saw this, what'd they do? They ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with these people? This is embarrassing to have a a religious teacher doing such a thing. But then Jesus says, I'm not here for the righteous. I'm not here for the healthy. I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the sinner. So think about it. Matthew, in this moment, is simply telling his story the day that he met Jesus. It's word of mouth. He's repeating his own story so that you could be inspired by it. That's all he's doing. Now obviously, in the context of the scripture, scriptures, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's true, it's good. But if you get in the simplest form, it's a repeating of a story, a real story of him meeting Jesus. He's just telling everybody what happened. This is how it went down. This is how I met him. Uh, 
look at this. In, in, in the telling of a story, hope you remember that. If not, it's printed on our cards in there. And you can take your own version home. In the story, we tap into emotions. Do bullet points cause emotional responses? They don't. But stories do. Stories do. And that's what happens. Matthew tells a story of how he met Jesus. Emotions like humor, excitement, anger, awe, uh, inspiration. Don't judge my spelling. I get fast and I... And they also carry moral lessons uh, and carry information. All that in a story. Okay? All that in a story. So let me ask you a couple questions. What emotions does Matthew's story tap into for the hearer? So knowing the context, knowing what's going on, what emotions does this simple four-verse story evoke? I don't know which one's mine, so I'm going with this one. Maybe I've been walking with Jesus for a while. Been keeping my record clean. Done what he said. And now he wants to eat with this guy. Could be some jealousy. What else? Yeah. I think that's a profound... There could be hope. That if I see what Jesus has done for Matthew, then maybe he could do that for me. Right? And that's, a, that's an incredible emotion that comes through a story and, pr- and creates a sense of hope for your future. What else? Curiosity. Well, what can curiosity do? I mean, that, that motivates us to... Yeah. Peek inside. Go spend some time with Jesus. Right? It, it motivates action. Curiosity. Y'all remember watching Curious George? He was a curious little monkey. It always got him in trouble. Uh, what else? Any other emotions that this story can provoke inside of us? What moral lessons does it carry for the hearer? What lessons do we need to learn from Matthew's simple one paragraph story? Hmm? There you go. Don't judge. I'm trying to think that and write something else. And look at the flip side and say, Jesus doesn't judge. And that... And we say quite regularly here that our activity flows from our identity. And our identity is in Jesus. It's been found in Jesus. So therefore, I'm not defined by what I do, but who I am drives what I do. And and, and my identity is in Jesus, and Jesus doesn't judge. Jesus accepts, and I don't judge, and I accept as well. Because I've been accepted, I accept others. Right? Jesus, you want to say this right here, and this is going to make people... 
uh, get a little nervous over here sometimes. But Jesus said, as a matter of fact, I have not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, there is a judgment that's coming, but he said it's not right now. It's not right now. So, there's one of your more, any other moral lessons that come out of this? Any other? I'm going to say that. The Pharisees just flat out got angry. So if I'm a Pharisee, if I get angry at that story, I'm probably a Pharisee. I may be a religious bigot. So whatever emotion comes up as we hear that story, it may tell us kind of where we're at right now in our heart. Any other moral lessons out of this story? Squeeze me. Baking powder. Okay. Okay. What information do we get out of this story? Okay. And we also get where he's going. So like Jesus can take the sinner, can take the enemy and make him a child. Right? Jesus takes those who, who aren't and he says you are. Um, there, there, there's no sin too big. There's no past too, too ugly. Right. Jesus likes to party. That's a good information. So we shouldn't be deadbeats who can't have fun. Right? People got onto him. You're eating and drinking with all these sinners. How dare you? I don't, I mean, I hear it a lot. Do y'all hear anybody say, well, you know, or maybe they don't say it anymore, but we think it. It's like, it's that whole mentality. I'll, I'll, I'll be a part of the church when I get my junk together. You know, it's like Jesus says, while you're yet sinners, I love you. And I engage you. I pursue you. I draw you. I'm not waiting. You'll never be clean. It's like your cleansing comes from me, and as long as you run away from me, either to be better or to be worse, the result is the same. You're still filthy. You're still a sinner. So your cleansing comes to me. Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, he loved us and he sent his son to die for us. Right? Here, Jesus is showing the first piece of our vision. He is loving others, wow, as the Father. This simple story, four verses, proclaims the first piece of our vision of what it looks like to love each other and others as the Father loves us. This is exactly it. This is a story to tell that piece of information, that lesson. And, and, and you didn't have to tell others. You, you didn't have to go say, you want to be a part of Jesus' church? They love each other like the Father loves us. Bullet points don't inspire, but Jesus told four verses and it either ticked them off or it made them come to the table. One of the two options. When, G, when Matthew told his own story, it had one of those two responses. This is what the love of the Father looks like. This is how we're going to do it. Do you want to be a part of that? Come to a party at Matthew's house, right? So I, th I think we're far enough down the road with each other that I don't want to expound on our vision. I want to do this. I want to turn it to you. And this is one of those times where I'm going to look to you until you get me some stories. So don't expect me to give up on this before I hear something, because I'm not. I will win this battle. Uh, at this point, I'm going to turn to you, and I'm going to say, what's your Salt County story? What, what is the moment, the situation in your life where a group of people showed you a level of unexpected, undeserved, 
kind of didn't see that coming approval for you. Another way of loving others as the Father is the Father is for you. He's not against you. He's for you. So when you think about that, and when you think about your encounter with this group of people and with each other, what is that, what is that moment? What was your situation? And then you, you encountered these people and you expected that they would be against you or judge you or, 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 or something. But in that moment, you're like, oh, they're for me. I didn't see that coming. What's your Salt County story that you can tell? To explain our vision. People are for you. They're for you. They love you like the Father does. She cut you off so early. What's your Salt County story? You don't. You haven't had to earn your spot at the table. 
right? It's reserved for you whenever you get there. Who else? What's your, what's your moment, your, your story where you're like, didn't expect people to be for me right now, but they are. Got time for one or two more. Um, can I ask a favor of you, Sam? Sure. I know they do that. Um, you don't have to get too deep in, into your story, but can you... I, I, I've never asked you, so and with the group seems like the most irrelevant place to do it. So um, how did it feel coming out of the situation you came out of and then kind of coming into this situation, the first morning you came and you helped us set up, and then the first DNA group. How did you expect to feel, and how did it actually feel? And any of the details of that story you want to include? Um, I came from, I came from a, 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 a,
So instead of inviting somebody to church this week, do what Matthew did. Tell them your story. It will evoke some emotional response that they'll be in awe, they'll be inspired, they'll be curious, and then they'll take some sort of action based upon what your story does in their mind because when you share that they begin to see the potential for their own life if they were a part of something like that wow there really is a place that people love me like the father loves me I've always heard that God loves me but I've never experienced that type of love right so we got a lot of churches in our county do a lot of good things Don't invite them to church. Invite them into your story. Tell them how that's going for you. And then invite them to be a part of it. That lands dramatically different than would you like to go to church with me this week? Because that question evokes emotions of its own in our county as well. Not all of them are good but to invite them into your story. That's incredibly different. Okay? So tell your story. It's your story. Tell how you met a group of people. Tell what it felt like, what it looked like when you found out that they were for you in a very unexpected way and what that did to you. And then invite them into that. Can we do that this week? We're done inviting people to church. I don't think it's ever worked. And it's sure not going to work in this day and age in this town. But if you invite them into the story that's currently happening in your life, the one danger of that, I'll end with this, the one danger of that, you may have to give them a glimmer a vision into your weakness if they're going to see the power of God that's being displayed in your life. You may have to say, this is where I was sitting at my booth when I met this man. I may have to admit I was a tax collector. I may have to admit I did feel like I was hated and I was, let, I was pushed out of my church. But then I met these people And they loved me. They were for me in this most unexpected way. Tell it. Tell it often. uh, And invite other people into it. So I'm going to pray for us. This will also be our blessing over our lunch. These guys are going to lead us, I think, in one more song as we pray and celebrate and move towards lunch. Don't leave. Danny's got a, a quick word of encouragement for us during our lunch. And um, let's do that. Father, we thank you for the time we've had together. Uh, I pray that uh, we would just simply do as Matthew.